1: Hi, welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to the Library Science Channel. My name is Halal Yadin, um, and I am here with Diana Kamen. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yes, thank you. Author of Picture Work, How Libraries, Museums, and Stock Agencies Launched a New Image Economy. Um, do you want to give us a little bit of background about yourself and about your book?
2: Sure. Um, maybe I'll start with the book. So Picture Work is you know, broadly motivated by um, the desire to historicize the work of making images available to the public. So the method uh, for that was to look at three case specific case studies. I looked at the New York Public Library, the Museum of Modern Art, and an early stock photography agency called H. Armstrong Roberts, Inc., um, and it was, you know, I did this through archival research, supplemented with some contemporary interviews. And broadly across those case studies, what, what I found, what um, the book covers is um, first the interest that libraries had in organizing pictures for broad public use, and that's pictures decontextualized from books or magazines that they originally appeared in, uh, pictures outside of art or print collections, uh, that kind of Um, organization for broad public use is a role we have largely now delegated to corporate platforms like Google or user-generated platforms like Flickr. So I was interested in this alternative library model of picture organization um, centered in, in one collection at the New York Public Library, the picture collection. And then in the museum context, I was interested in the centrality of printing and circulating pictures at the Museum of Modern Art since their founding including a history of circulating exhibitions of reproductions, running a slide rental library, selling facsimiles of European paintings to the American Midwest, uh, while at the same time, you know, developing a art historical framework for um, describing photography as a fine art, ascribing aura to the photographic print and the, um, the straight photographer, the style of photography that they championed. And then in the stock photography context, I was interested in the presence of these very postmodern ideas about the uh, construction of ambiguous scenes that could be anchored to a variety of contexts that could be sold over and over by a stock photography um, entrepreneur, pioneer uh, in the 1920s. So it's this early embrace of like semiotic promiscuity of modern visual culture and the sort of material and technological uh, supports he he developed in order to build an international business uh, to circulate these images using this paper database uh, to track his thousands and thousands of images. Uh, so that's the book, and then I can give a little background about myself as well. Um, I guess the relevant aspects of my own background, because I was, you know, the the instinct to look at professional contexts is that I, uh, before grad school, I worked for the permanent collection curator Dana Miller at the Whitney Museum of American Art. And um, while I was there, I was really fascinated by conversations, which I could later, you know, once I got to grad school, be able to describe as ontological conversations about artwork in which multiple, like different departments, different kinds of expert groups would be negotiating terms and concepts. Um, So for example, and I can talk feel like I can talk about this because there was this great New Yorker article by Ben Lerner about this committee. There was a committee called the Replication Advisory Committee. And you had legal people and art preparators and, of course, the Rights and Reproduction Department, as well as curators and conservators making decisions about, like, whether the process of replacing parts, migrating artwork to new media, creating replicas or exhibition copies or deciding not to replicate. Or as another example, you know, working with a web design company, you know, creating an online collection database, often in these rooms there would be these clashes of different expert groups with different knowledge frameworks um, for thinking about the artwork or the image reproduction. And so I went into grad school really interested in in describing the sort of knowledge systems that are represented by people who work with pictures. I think it's it's the curators, the critics, the artists who's... um, vision and understanding is often negotiated in, in discourse and in, in theoretical discourse. Um, while of course in these, you know, uh, departments where in the museum, we would call it a, the service departments have their own <laughs> negotiations and, and obviously as an archivist, you know, uh, dense theoretical discussions around, around practice. So, um, I want to kind of synthesize that like that variety of different roles as picture workers. And that, that was the like focus of the initial research. And then it, uh, at grad school turned into um, made a dissertation and then was revised into a book.
1: Great. Thank you. For listeners, I will link that Ben Lerner article in the episode notes. So you can take a look at that. Um, and that actually, before we get into our official questions, that does... Uh, remind me of a phrase that comes up multiple times in your book, which is iterative ontologies. Um, So, you know, you kind of saw it firsthand, but how do you think that that idea fits in broadly to this history you have of image circulation?
2: Yeah, so iterative ontologies um, is a term that I'm borrowing, you know, probably bastardizing (laughs) <laughs> Both from computer science, in which it's the process of you know uh, deriving a schema, a set of schema, a set of descriptors from incorporating, like resolving differences between multiple different sets of schema, and then there's a um, STS scholar Anne Marie Mole who has um, described, who's used this concept to describe um, more the the type of process I was. Uh, referring to I think, with the idea of different expert groups coming into a room with different ontological descriptors for a phenomena and uh, the ways in which those differences between like ontological understandings of a particular phenomena she was looking in, in medical uh, environments, how those get resolved. And um, so I'm applying that then to the, the artwork and this, that concept comes up, uh, specifically in the museum chapter, I think for this reason, because there are, um, uh, lots of stakes that are placed on the description of an artwork. Um, and that has implications down the line around, you know, material value, insurance value, uh, exhibition context and, and, and reproduction context. And, um, I, as a museum worker, f- found it interesting to observe the, the different ways that um, departments are called on to, to resolve these these differences. And the role that photography especially can play in that. Uh, just to shout out another book, I guess that I would be great to link is there's a um, recent book called What Photographs Do, uh, produced by the Victoria and Albert Museum. Um, that it t- has contributions by um, workers all across the museum, talking about the role of photography in the museum ecosystem and the the shifting role like a single photographic object can play. And that's something I trace in my chapter, but is also done really well in their book.
1: I have not read it, so I will link it and <laughs> read it myself. <laughs> that sounds right up my alley. Um, on that note... Let's talk about the New York Public Library. Um, so, the kind of one of the core workers in your study of the NYPL is Ramona Javits, who was the first. Uh, was she the first librarian? She wasn't the to had The picture collection.
2: She wasn't the first. She's a longtime um, superintendent of the collection of 1929 to 1968, and she was largely responsible for for growing it and making okay. it what it was. But it was so not yeah. the first, but. Uh,
0: critical and, um, player and critical
2: yeah
1: um so she in her role advanced these concepts of the picture as a document um and this idea that individual users will determine meaning individually for any particular picture um and i think these concepts are fairly well received today. Probably anyone listening to this would co-sign those. Um, But Javits met some resistance during her tenure. Um, So can you kind of situate us in the 20s, let's say when she's starting, what was the general understanding of photographs and photography and what was she really finding herself pushing back against?
0: Well,
2: Thank you so much for this question. So yeah, Romana Javits is a really key figure in the book. Um, and as you say, she's was the critical figure in developing this picture collection at the New York Public Library, which, to be clear, is a kind of unusual collection if, if you haven't um, visited. It's a um, library collection in which pictures are clipped, uh, like cut, literally cut out of books, magazines, and other sources, organized by subject, and prepared for circulation. So people can check from the beginning, they could check these pictures out. And um, the phrase pictures of documents, um, I, I love this phrase and I, I love the way you say she advanced this concept because she, she used this phrase so much, um, all, like she used it all the time and she used it in order to make arguments. Uh, it's in her lectures, her annual reports, her memos to N- the NYPDL director, her talks to staff. And what I, again, like about it is in like three words, she's able to make multiple arguments to all the people she was in dialogue with. Um, and so her argument basically was that pictures, the, the straight argument to the library supervisors is that pictures can be used for factual research and reference work. They're not just used to illustrate a particular event, like as in photojournalism. They're not just used as commercial advertisements. Uh, that are meant to be dismissed by serious you know, librarians, and they're not just um, to be interpreted as art in which the primary information markers are artist nationality and year. Further, the same picture could be used, potentially be used in all of those different ways. Um, and so then that Argument, pictures as documents, pictures have this, you know, can be a source of information to different types of information seekers. Was a plea for resources to library administrators, saying this should be something like an area of knowledge that we invest in. Um, An argument that pictures belong in libraries organized by subject. It was also a claim to documentalists around the world, the sort of emerging work in um, librarianship around organizing information an argument to them that pictures are information and also an argument to the art world that they could not claim interpretive authority over art and art reproductions and I would say I mean the fact that she was making these different arguments about pictures or photography at that time like indicate already that there wasn't really a quote general understanding of photography like since the you know Invention of photography claims about its use and purpose have been like diverse and fraught. Um, so at that time in the 20s, there are, you know, commercial photographers playing with, you know, advertisers that photography can be really great to be used in advertisements showing that it wasn't already thought of that way. And you also have um, photographers in the art world arguing with each other about the proper sort of deployment of the camera. Should it be, you know, the pictorialist versus the, the um, straight photographers. Um, So there's already negotiated discussions around it. I think her intervention is it's um, librarians have a role to play in not claiming authority over any type of interpretation of the image, but rather in making, organizing and making images available to to a wide public for these all these diverse uses.
1: And we will be getting more into the art world and the advertising world <laughs> shortly. Um, so I'll start with this question specifically about the New York Public Library. Um, but during the time that you cover, the New York Public Library certainly underwent major shifts, um, and there were these cultural shifts that you argue um, the NYPL impacted, supported. Um, So before we kind of talk about the role of circulating photographs in these cultural shifts. Can you just give us an overview of
2: what those shifts were broadly? Sure. I guess, uh, you know, both New York Public Library and MoMA are um, institutions that are born in New York City at a particular time, Um, starting with the New York Public Library. And I hope I'm Maybe getting to your question, um, just to describe their history a bit. It's New York Public Library is founded in 1895. It's a culmination of this old, big old New York philanthropic trusts that merged to create the um, NYPL. And they start constructing really rapidly a network of branch libraries in the flagship building at 42nd and 5th. And it maybe now then is a good time to discuss that distinction between um, like branch and circulation departments versus uh, reference libraries that, you know, c- contemporary New Yorkers or visitors to New York will associate. Like it's a different thing to walk into the the marble building at 42nd street than your local pl- branch library around the corner. Um, Javits was very much a um, branch librarian. She was um, uh, focused on Engaging with the broad public, creating community resources. And um, there's, you know, Phyllis Dane has a classic history of the New York Public Library, and she traces how um, the work that uh, branch librarians did in the, you know, the time period in which Javits is um, trained to um, integrate, to do outreach and accessibility work with the influx of new immigrant communities in New York City at that time, uh, something that was important to Javits. uh, She wanted people to, like, accessibility was really important to her. She wanted um, people to be able to make requests for pictures through drawings if they weren't comfortable with English. She wanted the public to be able to directly browse in the stacks. She wanted subject terms to be as close to spoken language as possible. so, there's this, there's both the waves of um, new immigrant groups and negotiation around American identity, um, but also the emergence of art, advertising, theater, and design communities centered in New York City. So, both NYPL, the picture collection especially, and um, MoMA end up being essential resources for those professional communities. So, for MoMA, MoMA is founded in 1929, also, you know collaboration collaborative effort between the you know three big New York City philanthropic families and they tap a young art historian named Alfred Barr to be the first director a lot of ink has been spilled on Barr and his role in founding MoMA and setting the mission of kind of codifying and um you know lecturing on and, and publicizing a sort of emerging canon of of modern art. Um, but I, you know, in the book, I focused specifically on his work with reproductions and, and how he worked with them, what he said about them. Um, he might be getting a little off topic, but thinking about reproductions and the role in the museum, he he worked as a grad student with the medievalist Charles Rufus Morey and the index of medieval art, which had bar, um, shuffling index cards of, of reproductions. He, he had to cultivate his own collection of reproductions for teaching purposes, and he worked hard to import reproductions from Europe. And then this gets back to the museum. Once he found MoMA, he puts a lot of focus and resources on um, – uh building the museum's collection of reproductions for different purposes. So um, he was a champion of their circulating exhibition department, which was a department that put together didactic shows on modern art that circulated the country, like to university galleries and schools, but also to shopping malls, department stores. The goal was really to educate the American public about European modern art. Later, as they kind of they play a key role in. Arguing that, you know, America has taken up the mantle of of the vanguard of of, of modern art. Um, But at this time, it was about teaching, educating the American public on European modern art. Um, So MoMA also um, built up a a library of reproductions that they licensed out uh, to to scholars and publishers, um, which helped to build and, you know, reproduce the canon of, of modern art that MoMA was advocating for. And, um, but they also fielded reproduction requests from some of the same users of the New York Public Library Picture Collection from designers or advertisers who were looking for illustrations. Um, and so that, you know, w- the work of building reproductions was about, you know, funneling I- images from MoMA's collection into a network of publications. So, while we're on the topic of MoMA,
1: you know, that's sort of the external circulating exhibit and the sales reproductions and all of these things. I was really interested in your section on Soichi Tsunami and the sort of internal labor of photography. So, would you mind speaking briefly to his role at MoMA?
2: Yeah. Um he was a photographer i don't think he was ever officially on staff but he was a the photographer who shot moma's collection and um uh exhibition photography like shoot they didn't shoot every angle of every exhibition but for the exhibitions that were photographed for the first um i don't have the numbers in front of me but you know co- decade or or two, um, they were exclusively shot by Suichi Tsunami, who is a um, photographer with his own practice. He has these beautiful photos of, um, modern dancers. Um, but this was a, this was a job. It was a, a documentation job, um, that, and he was good at it. Um, and, uh, he printed the photos in black and white in his home studio. Uh, I mean, he was also an incredibly talented photographer, and he's getting more attention now as a photographer in his own right. Um, but at the same time, M- MoMA does not own any images by Tsunami as a photographer in their collection, even as their you know collection record files are are filled with um, photos, not just photos that he took, like slides or reproductions, but actual prints that were printed by him by hand in in his studio. Um, And that, you know, was one way to explore this distinction then with the the way that the museum ecosystem kind of bestows uh, value and authorship onto certain kinds of objects. Um, So there's this you know, in, in an old, f- uh, photography collection book. So before you have an online database, they had their, uh, images of the collection organized in these, uh, uh, bound books. And there are page, a page with a print, a tsunami print, and you can tell it by the S number on the, the negative number of a photo originally taken by Eugene Atje, but printed, posthumously by berenice abbott that is then the photograph is photographed by soichi tsunami and that's what is in this book um but the you know the the author emblazoned on it is is atje and um kind of exploring then the different values on what like straight photography meant which was meant to be this sort of like um skilled uh Use of the 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 camera as sort of pure medium, um, where it's about the skilled capturing of the scene without intervention by the photographer, um, and yeah, the then how that is is valued and promoted by MoMA as um, a fine, making photography a fine art that's a a art a, a genre that should be collected and. Um, paid attention to and exhibited, um, and then the use of photography in its own ecosystem, without ascribing that same kind of value. I guess maybe that's where, how the, the Soichi tsunami plays in. But I think he's a really interesting figure. And there's like a printed um, book, and not book. It's like a t- typed type manuscript of his uh, biography that's in MoMA's library. And cool. that was where also I got a lot add it of- to the episode notes. <laughs> <laughs> I have to find the the record locator, um, but it's it was a you know major source for that um, for for that section in the book. And I remember when I was going to check it out, the librarian said a lot of people have been checking this out lately. So I wonder if there there might be more. Don't they always <laughs> have the intel. <laughs> the yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, I love it. it
2: went, hmm, a, lot, a lot of people have been checking this out lately. So I've been yeah, on the lookout since then. On? Yeah. I mean, he had an amazing uh, exhibition. Uh, would, let's, um, let me send you the link to the exhibition because it's not at the top of my fingertips right now. And you can also include that in the,
0: in the um, notes as well. <laughs> Great. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com.
1: of straight photography in contrast to art photography, all sorts of kinds of photography, um, really comes up quite a bit in your chapter on stock photography, which I thought was really... I thought the way that you complicated the idea, uh, the role of stock photography was really interesting. Um, so you did you did give a bit of an overview of the chapter earlier, but is there anything you want to add um, before we kind of get into the questions about your findings about stock photography and its circulation and how people were understanding
2: it? Um, so, I'll say that just, you know, the the case study for that chapter is H. Armstrong Roberts, who is a um, photographer who is in some, you know, more inside baseball, you know, trade publications about stock photography, is lauded as the first stock photographer. Um, that is questionable for a lot of reasons. There's practices that are pretty close to modern stock photography in the 19th century with the Marketing and sale of um, stereoscopic uh, postcards by Underwood and Underwood. Um, But one of the things that um, H. Armstrong Roberts did was um, both in his marketing, one of his innovations was in his marketing, and um, the way he marketed his collection as libraries of stories of ready made illustrations. Um, early use of these sort of gridded catalog pages, marketing catalog pages that he used as a sales technique that represented, um, the image as a, um, product the same way, you know, Sears catalogs might have represented their, their home goods as products. And, um, he constructed a, um, a home studio that was very influenced by, you know, features of, um, Film studios that he had some familiarity with, um, glass ceiling, rolling casters, rolling lights, and would organize shoots around basically producing as many different configurations of of stories as he could with the, you know, whoever the models were, uh, the scenery and props that were available at that moment. Just you know, pumping out different sort of scenes in order to try to tell a what he imagines, you know, telling a story in one, in one, um, image story of, you know, a grandmother cooking pie with her grandchildren, domestic scenes, um, scenes of conflict, scenes of romance, uh, and marketing them alongside his nature and other kinds of scenes as this, like promising this just availability of pictures. From his earliest marketing, there's, um, uh, reference to, Um, the, like the availability of any kind of picture you can imagine he will be able to provide. Um, and, uh, if you look up now, H. Armstrong Roberts, you'll probably get a lot of, um, hits of these like quirky, uh, old fashioned looking stock photographs that are kind of in style because it's, it's in like i was i cite the use of them in the new york times or new york magazine it's kind of these winky um old-timey very performative staged uh images of interactions between people or, or silly scenes like a a baby sitting in a leather armchair on the holding a rotary telephone um it's kind of an absurdity uh to some of the constructed scenes that was born from this just you know, voracious desire to create a, a picture for every, for every buyer. And not only that, a picture of that could be sold again and again. And that was also part of his early marketing, the way he described his business, the way he was reported on in, in photography, um, trade magazines at that time, as, um, someone who has discovered a way to, um, shoot and market photos that can be sold again and again and again taking advantage of this licensing model for um for photography and um it's an interesting case study because he um his business passed to his son and then to his grandson so when I was doing the research um the building the you know business still operates out of the same studio that he built in the 1920s using the card cataloging system that, uh, he developed also by, by the 1930s. So there's cards you can pull out recording sales from the, from the twenties and thirties. Um, and with the
1: friends. studio is still live work and the grandson is married to a longtime employee,
2: right? Yeah, actually, um, <laughs> sadly, um, he actually, re- he recently passed away. Um, Charm Roberts the third. So, um, yeah, I'm in touch with, with his widow and, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really sad and, and poignant to think about the, the life of that business and how, long like how he was able to to maintain it and and bring his grandfather's you know business and collection of of photos in, into the 21st century going through like so many technological changes that I guess we'll we'll talk about later but um, um yeah if you if you google h armstrong roberts you'll see a, a lot of examples of these kinds of silly photos Um, but I try not to, I mean, there are great, I think there's great illustrations, especially some of the old catalogs, um, in the book, but I try not, I try to also think, take it as a like serious, um, theoretical contribution, I guess, to image culture, because these are, if anything, the stock photographs are the images that I talk about how MoMA trains the public in ways to think about modern art or the library trains the public in ways of thinking about images as available, but I kind of try to make the argument that stock photography teaches consumers how to see and interpret f- photographs um, as these just like semiotically promiscuous objects that can be um, anchored to, to many different concept, uh, contexts. So first of all, I would like to say I'm very sorry to hear about
1: Armstrong the Third um who really does come through in the book if any listeners read it when it comes out he's definitely a
2: a, a real distinct voice uh yeah I probably quote him a lot because he <laughs> spoke really so I mean I th- throughout I also to you know Javits like the I think the words of picture workers um I talked at the beginning about wanting to bring in those like knowledge systems and philosophies of the image in, in people's own words. And um, Javits was an amazing writer and and I bring a lot of her words into it, but also Bob Roberts um, was a very thoughtful speaker about this history and um, his, his, his father's and his grandfather's approach to photography. Yeah.
1: I want to say one thing. For the listeners, I don't know if we'll have time to go back to it, um, but I want to pull out one thing that you said about stock photography before we move on to the point you just made about stock photography training viewers to understand pictures a certain way. Before we get back into that, um, I just want to note one thing that comes up throughout the book that is really interesting is this idea that you brought up again with these photographs, this idea of the quantity. You kind of write about it as the aesthetic of quantity. I think you um, quote Javits calling it, her, her collection, a uh, monstrous quantity. <laughs> There's something about um, the scale of these collections that is impacting how people are using them. And if we have time, if you want to go back and say something about that, we can, but I do I do think what you ended on about the, the way people are understanding the stock photographs is really interesting. Um, and I, one of the quotes that stood out to me from that chapter is you write, what makes stock photography distinct is the way it allegorizes the process of seeing machinically. Um, so can you talk a little bit about this idea of allegory? in the stock photograph.
2: Yeah, and I think that, that idea of seeing machine gleam will relate back to scale. Um, I mean, specifically allegory, I, I love this question, but it was also, it was like a, a triggering question because <laughs> my dissertation defense, now as a, re- a reader in literary studies kind of grilled me, like why allegory? Like, do you, do you know what you're talking about with allegory? Because it's the- I don't know what thing. I'm talking about with allegory, no, so well, I won't really. Well, so for me, I mean, my defense <laughs> is like, well, I was really, I found um, thinking about Uh, Walter Benjamin, like the Benjaminian concept of allegory really useful. But like any Benjaminian term, he uses it. It's like very capacious and generative, but also kind of contradictory. But for me, I was thinking, you know, using it as how he would sort of write about the the allegorist is someone who approaches the image or the past in a different way than other figures like the scholar or the collector, it's someone who uses the like wreckage of, of the past to harvest for symbols, for new meanings. And so in this way, he argues, and, or other Benjaminian scholars like Susan Buckmorris will argue, um, Benjamin said that Baroque poets or or poets like But Baudelaire can deconstruct myth by revealing the mechanics of myth-making because allegory is basically just a way of seeing anything as capable of holding different meanings, capable of standing in for something else, just sort of reduction to symbol. And so I try to argue then this, like, two things, both training the public to see machinically, training the public to see... um, images as sort of the construction of multiple different elements that can be reconstructed um, but also as like condi- like uh, of meaning visual meaning as fungible arbitrary and flexible so even as um, stock might reflect and reinforce totalizing narratives or like in semiicity of myth about race class and gender, at the same time, there also might be this detonation from within um, in that they, they teach the viewer that that meaning is kind of arbitrary and flexible. Um, with the idea of uh, scale and the pressure to scale, um, which is, you know, a felt by the library in terms of um, – uh, and a sex of quantity of making images available um, to the stock agency of making um, images available for sale. <laughs> um, I'm I'm definitely interested in this like pr- pressure to scale in which you know multiple stakeholders then are 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 under this understanding that the the more a system scales, the more value it will have. And that places um, value then on um, automation, uh, you know, all the things we can see the story across capitalism, (laughs) Um, automations and a kind of faith then in the, in the system um, to, to provide what's needed as long as it's scaled enough. And um, for in, you know, licensing and stock, we can, we can see how for that industry that created situations in which then individual images are valued less and less. And, you know, in labor, it creates conditions in which, um, you know, there's more precarity and, um, uh, like movement in, in, uh, the, in certain positions within an institution, um, I don't know if that exactly, that's what, where I kind of go when thinking about scale because I've been thinking about this in relation to industry changes um, in in stock right now. With so the, that, yeah. yeah, as you can go imagine, ahead. is one
1: yeah. of my questions. <laughs> yeah. Um, so <laughs> again, another thing we, I, before I ask this question, I will say one thing to the, um, any listeners, you touched on another idea that is present in this chapter and throughout the book which is Benjamin's dialectical image. I just remembered that because you said something about images detonating and that stuck out to me in the book where you describe a dialectical image as uh, that image from the past that might have been forgotten but for its ability to detonate in the present. Um, So read the book if you want to hear more. For now. Um, so it, the book is a study of the labor of picture work, um, which of course means it's also a study of the technologies of picture work. Um, so you, there are a couple of things that you really pull out as pivotal technologies, including the card catalog, the ledger, the CD-ROM, um, and what I think you were starting to... Allude to, which is these modern day digital assets management systems, a little bit AI. Um, so I I hesitate to ask people for predictions. <laughs> that's not It's not exactly um, what I think the the goal is here, but maybe if you could sort of situate these technologies, the digital technologies really, and the impact we're seeing. On the laborers, on the consumers of images, within this technological history.
2: Yeah, I mean, yeah. So my my vantage point is like always as more a, as a historian. Um, and these are huge questions, and they're obviously you know the tra- how AI and different these different new technologies are going to transform visual culture. Um, but just I guess to go back to that question of the the how the technologies in the book. Um, shaped labor, so not to be like technologically determinist. <laughs> uh, but me- media history and the history of social history of technology scholars have pointed out the ways in which technologies and the ways they're adapted to existing workplaces will end up shaping labor practices and systems of value. We can understand that at least as an exchange. So like other recent books that cover this is Craig Robertson's book on um, the filing cabinet, how the introduction of the filing cabinet into the office changed the perception of the work of filing from a more masculine like expert position to a feminized undervalued position in which the expertise of filing is now delegated to the technology. And other scholars have shown how technology can shape patterns of thinking. So Marcus Krugyski's study of the card catalog shows the ways in which, you know, processes like cross-referencing that's allowed by index cards shapes like the output of writers who use these systems. Um, At H. Armstrong Roberts, index cards were used to track popularity of images, the stacks of sold images that were tracked on these cards would move from desk to desk and prompt Roberts to jot down new ideas on his own cards of new ideas that go into a box of cards of new ideas. Um, It promotes that kind of both the like production of more and more (laughs) of these cards and ideas, but also the idea that you can recombine and like create images through this just shuffling of cards. Um, d- digital asset management systems um, is something I, I look at in the book as introducing another expertise shift, bringing in companies that were were new t- companies and new technologies in the 1990s into museum, library, and stock agencies that have prompted a move to what we're all – experiencing directly in our own archiving processes in which a lot of times our images are managed and circulated on servers that might be far from our actual homes or in these institutions cases from their actual collections. So I think there's a way in which that idea I talked about earlier in which the deference to a system or the focus on scale can discourage like the, the slower work of curation, the the slower work of face-to-face negotiations as an arch, archivist, um, you, you know, if people can access your collections online. You lose some of that, that little aside about huh? a lot of people have been checking out this Soichi Tsunami. Yeah. It's <laughs> uh, a, big, recently. a big problem that I grapple with. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, so practically then it also discourages that like, the value of institutional knowledge and the value of history or staying at an institution, building your career at an institution. Cause if like tech is produced by the, and an organization is produced by outside companies, it's the knowledge of the tech or the program that's valued and it's now portable. Um, so yeah, in terms of AI, which, you know, comes into the book in in the revising process and and because again, it's more of a historical look is, um, more, more speculative in terms of how the idea of like type in a, a description and it will spit out an image is, is foretold by H. Armstrong Roberts shuffling of cards. But, um, it like in terms of labor, so many industries are bracing for these, this reorganization of labor patterns and expertise. And we'll, again, probably in terms of forecast, it's not like, wild to say that we'll probably see what we see across industries under capitalism. <laughs> um, Seems like a sound prediction. Casual, casualization and, and precarity. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, and I, uh, I'm feel like I'm talking so much about the book and I'm valuing so much your, your, the, the thoughtfulness of, of these questions, but I would love to hear from you. Yeah. You were like intimating like, yeah, this is a huge problem <laughs> with the kind of shifting that, that work of interacting with the collection off site, what what's that experience from your perspective? So there are a couple
1: I have I have presented on this. Um, I'll do this very quickly because I do have two more questions for you. But there are there are there are problems on a couple of levels. One is just a sort of very logistically we as an archive need to prove that people are using our collections to get funding and it helps if we can say X, Y and Z were produced from our collections Um, and we have our digitized collections we really we can figure out how many people clicked into a PDF um, and that gives us really no useful information you know no funder is only interested in this, this many people clicked into our digital collections in a year So we're losing a lot of that. Um, We are also, these systems are often very difficult for our patrons to use. Um, They're not super intuitive. This is something that that I do a lot of work on with outreach is this idea that a library catalog or, you know, archive space or whatever you're using is not a search engine there is a bit of an art to catalog searching. Um, This idea that data is structured a certain way so that it is findable, but you have to know to find it, uh, is often very new to our researchers. And, you know, once we get them on the phone or on Zoom or on email, we can tell them the gaps. Um, But a lot of people, I just, I can't, I, I have no sense of how many people are not finding what they're looking for in these online systems, not reaching out, and we're never able to say to them, we have it. It's just hard to find if you're not used to this kind of research. We have, I think, for a research library, I, I work with, I work with. I feel, probably a larger proportion of sort of non-academic researchers than a lot of my colleagues. Um, So it is, I just, I don't want people to miss stuff, (laughs) but I also would like better numbers um, on a very sort of practical level. And, you know, these, the numbers really shape, a a tiny proportion of our archive is actually digitized. And we are, I'm I'm pro digitization. We have an an international um, user base, for lack of a better term, a lot of people are never going to get to New York and look at stuff in the reading room. And I would really rather they have the digital facsimile than nothing. Um, but it's, of course, incredibly expensive and labor intensive. And, you know, we have to sort of strategically decide what is being digitized, how we're promoting things, what collections we need to build out better finding aids or portals or anything you know when we just when we don't know who's actually using what and how they're using it those kinds of calculations become very difficult or you know we will we'll do them as best as we can and realistically we are they're not they're not ideal <laughs>
2: So as you're talking it's making me think like that I talked about the sort of knowledge systems that are embodied in in people who do this type of labor as if it, like that it's sort of internal to just the the work of those workers with the pictures but it's actually the knowledge systems that develop in mostly be, like because of the dialogue that those that workers have with users and and that's really a big um part of this back then is about um, how um, the collection workers think <laughs> shape these conversations with their users. And, and all of the, you know, interviews I had with um, workers across museum, SOC and library workers uh, who were, you know, overseeing these shifts in the 90s talk about that loss. And, and the the loss of um, knowledge that it, it can represent that is formed in the in the interactions with users, and and it's really hard to outsource that or try to imagine or design a, a web page that will or a keyword or a you know d- database that will stand in for it, and it, it ends up outsourcing a lot of that labor of teaching like oneself to the user, um, in ways that discourage actually finding stuff and. Um, and it ends up devaluing uh, the the labor of collection workers as well. So it's that's the the challenge I guess to find it, of um, create like preserving the the advances in accessibility and uh, addressing the losses in interaction between between people.
1: Yeah. No, it's a tough balance. Mm-hmm. And I am certainly on the side of the gains in accessibility are, you know, offset the loss. But, you know, I even I, important collections, I'll put a little form in the finding aid that says, you know, let us know if you're using this. We would love to see. Nobody wants to fill out forms. <laughs> you know, like we're really... All of my experiments so far have been... Um, you know there's a lot of citation trackers things that have been very helpful in terms of tracking academic work because now you know I, i'll have people who write books using stuff from the archive and i'll only see it you know they did not interact with the reference team at all i'll just see that the, there's a book published that cites evo institute for jewish research and i'm like oh cool <laughs> You know, someone wrote a book with a collection that's entirely online um, and I you know it. I, I enjoy the people part of the job so for me personally I do feel that there is a little something missing there's but, a
2: call to all researchers to yeah go back to the archives you used whether you're revisited in person or <laughs> online and share and your send work send your an email
1: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we want to see them All right. We are running low on time. Um, We have not gotten to all the questions that I have. So that is um, a a signal to our listeners. There's a lot in this book. If you um, are interested in these topics, there's plenty more to unpack. But I have one last question for you. So you write in the book that the media theorist W.J.T. Mitchell's seminal question, what do pictures want, is of primary importance to your study. So I will ask you, what do pictures want? Uh, as pictures want
2: global domination. Um, yeah, it's such a great phrase. And, you know, Mitchell's intent in, in his own writing is to introduce ideas about desire and intersubjectivity into looking relationships and import some sort of uh, more anthropological ideas about looking and image making into, into visual culture um I hadn't thought about this question in, in terms of how I would answer it because it, it feels more re- like a rhetorical flourish but I I like this question because it made me sit down and think like what what would I say I guess um you know my use of it is more to take for granted that, pictures want to be used. <laughs> they want to be found. And I think that's what um, the the voices that are loudest in this book say. And um, the ability for a picture to be found is often facilitated by a picture worker. And so it's it's valuable to, if we want to explore the question of what pictures want to to look at the work of um of picture work and picture workers
1: absolutely i'll keep it short thank and sweet. you <laughs> so much for taking the
2: time um yeah thank you so much this was fantastic thank you thank you for your time and thank you for um for your really thoughtful attention to this book and um this was really gratifying conversation thank you